been a privilege for Jackie and I about 18 months ago to start leading a family group. We wanted to uh, lead a group of those in our congregation who were young married without children. And in the process of leading that group, three of those couples then had children. <laughs> so we kicked them out. No. No, it's, it's been fun. We had so many join us, then we divided the group, and the three with uh, kids have started a new group, and our new group that didn't have any kids is now expecting three kids, so <laughs> be careful if you come to our house. <laughs> so uh, I wasn't here last week. If you were here, you know I wasn't here because the privilege of marrying off our fifth child, our second daughter, Abby, got married last Saturday evening here in Jacksonville. Privilege to give her away and a privilege to share in the ceremony. And very excited about that until I came and watched Tony's teaching and he summarily dismissed that we had a wedding because he was a grandfather. <laughs> did, did he not do that? Yes, he did do that. And so I called my son Will and he and his wife went ahead and had their baby then on Monday. So not to be outdone, we had a a wedding and a grandchild. So, no, that's just fun. And in the process of the wedding, my daughter came down from Columbia and her husband, Chad, and gave us with great news that they're going to be expecting a little boy in September. And uh, our other son, Clayton, who and his wife, Roxanne, attend here, they're expecting a little girl in August. So by the end of September, we're going to have added three babies and a man to the family in 2017. So very, very exciting. Thanks for enduring that. So in the midst of all that, Jackie's 90-year-old mother fell and broke her ribs. So it, it reminded me of Jackie saying, if I ever write a book... I'm going to, as a mom, call it my life as a pinball machine because of getting bounced all over. And that's reflective, honestly, of the text that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus' life as a pinball machine. You'll see what I mean in a moment. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1, verse 32, we're told this, when evening came after the sun had set, And Mark writes that because he is communicating to us that the day had ended and a new day had begun. We think a new new day begins at midnight, excuse me, at midnight, not true in Jewish culture. A new day begins after the sun has set. That's the marking of a new day. So the previous day to what we're about to read had been the Sabbath. And because in Jewish culture, lifestyle, the Sabbath was holy and there was not much activity on the Sabbath. It was to be a day set apart. When evening came after the sun had set, in other words, the Sabbath was over and now the new day had begun, they began bringing to him, him as Jesus, all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, like Tony talked about last week. And the whole city had gathered at the door. So they are lined up As soon as the new day begins, the Sabbath is over, people from all over are lined up at the door where Jesus is. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out 
many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak, speak because they knew who he was. But you, can you imagine what's happening around that house that night after dark? All the people who are both rejoicing in what God has just done through Jesus in healing them and delivering them from demon possession and those who are expectantly waiting for their turn. This would have been something like we have probably never, ever known personally what's happening. And so all of this activity is going on after dark outside of the house where Jesus is staying. But then verse 35 says this. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companion, Simon is Peter, his companions probably would have been at least his brother Andrew and James and John, fellow fishermen. And they searched for Jesus and they found him and they said to him, everyone's looking for you. So in other words, if I can paint the picture for you, the Sabbath had ended, crowd showed up, Jesus heals, Jesus delivers, and people are rejoicing and other people are waiting. But at some point... Somebody, I don't know who it was, somebody shut it down and said, we got to go to bed. Y'all got to go home. That's what we had to do at family groups sometimes. Y'all, y'all, I need to go to bed. Y'all need to go home. And Jesus goes, I got to go, I got to go to bed. And so at some point they send the crowd home. It was obviously dark at that time. Still while it's dark, early in the morning, Jesus gets up and leaves. Everybody else is still sleeping because it's dark. When they get up, they're all looking for Jesus, but they can't find him. When they finally do, they go, hey, everybody's looking for you. And then Jesus says this, let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also for that's what I came for. This is a fascinating encounter in the life of Jesus. I've simply titled it, Jesus Encounters Competing Needs. You know what I mean? He, he was encountering other towns who needed him and the town that he was in who needed him. Both wanted a piece of Jesus. And so I want us to answer this question this morning from the example of Jesus. What do you do when the needs of people around you are more than you can meet? Because that's going to happen for all of us at times. Whether it's at work, at home, in the neighborhood, or you stack it all together and you go, the needs are more than the minutes. I can't, I I feel overwhelmed. I'm being pulled this direction, being pulled this direction. I feel like I need to be there, need to be there, and need to be there, but I'm only one person. Hey, moms, Mother's Day, you ever felt that? Yeah, you're like, I, I, I can't, how do I deal with all of this? And what's so powerful about this encounter that we see with Jesus in Mark 1 is that he, by his example, does the counterintuitive. We're going to answer two questions this morning, and both answers we're going to find are counterintuitive. The first question What do you do when you got more needs than minutes? Well, here is the example of Jesus for us to learn from. Verse 35. In the early morning, 
while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went away to a secluded place, and was praying there. So when he was most busy, when he had more needs than minutes, what did he actually do? (laughs) He added something to the agenda. And that was, he added, I got to get alone with the Father. All right. So you understand when I say that's counterintuitive? It's the opposite of what we do. They say confession's good for the soul, so let me give you an opportunity for something good for your soul. By a show of hands, how many of you have said, man, I am too busy to spend time with God today. I don't have time for my quiet time. I don't have time to read my Bible. I don't have time to pray. I've just got too much to do. How many of you by a show of hands would say, yeah, you've done that? All right. The honest people in the room have their hand in the air. Yeah, the the reality is when we get busy, we exit this from our life. And what Jesus is demonstrating and what I hope we will take away this morning is this. A fundamental core conviction that I'm actually too busy not to pray. It's a great play on this, oh, I'm too busy to pray. I'm too busy to spend time with the Lord. No, actually, Jesus demonstrates, I'm too busy not to. I have too many things that are demanding my attention not to give my attention to this. Did you hear that? When you feel most overwhelmed, the very thing you are tempted to do is to exit what you need to do most. And that is... To get alone with God. To spend some time with him. The psalmist says this. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help. My King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you'll hear my voice. In the morning. Now just pause there. See, the reality is this. Most of us, when we have more minutes, more needs than minutes, we go, why can I get rid of some of my things I normally do instead of what Jesus did and what the psalmist does, what do they do? They add minutes to their day by getting up earlier. Yeah. <laughs> See, now I'm the bad guy. What, I, I need to get up earlier? Probably. Probably. Not so you can get after meeting needs sooner. You need to get up earlier so you can do what you need to do most, and that is get alone with God. Because watch what he says here. He says, in the morning, I'll order my prayer to you, and then watch this. Eagerly watch. The psalmist is communicating something different than what we often do. Many of us do try to have a regular, and I hope you do, have a regular time of reading the scriptures. It doesn't have to be in the morning, but usually if it's going to happen, it's going to be in the morning. So to read the scriptures. But usually our time with the Lord consists of, let me open my Bible, maybe I'll pray, then I'll read my Bible, then I'll go through a prayer journal, and then when I'm done praying about the things I want to pray about and I'm done reading about the things that I intended to read, we close and we move on. And we miss these two words right here. 
The psalmist said, I got alone, I cried out to God, and then I stayed and I watched. What's that mean? That means the whole value of time alone with God is hearing from him. And we end up filling all of our time alone with God of him hearing from us. No offense, but that's not the highest value of that time. The highest value of time alone with God is you to hear from him, not to hear from, not just you, him to hear from you. So I want to encourage you. First, when you get busy, don't miss getting alone. And when you get alone, no offense here, shut up. Really. Spend a little time watching, listening, waiting on the Lord. The highest value is what he brings to the moment, not what you bring to the moment. You're not checking a box. You're existing in a relationship. And as far as I remember, the relationship between me and the Lord is he is the leader. I need to hear from him first and foremost. So the psalmist says, in the morning, I cry out, and then I watch. It's not that he doesn't hear from me. It's that as soon as he hears from me, once he's heard from me, I don't end it. I watch. Question. When Jesus was alone in the quiet place, well, did he hear from the Father? I think he did. Because when people show up, Looking for him, what's he say? He says, let's go somewhere else. See, let's go somewhere else, to towns nearby, so that I might preach there also. For that's what I came for. One of the most important things that happens when we get alone with God is we give God the opportunity, the time for him to rearrange the priorities back to what they should be in our lives. Because when we get busy, usually priorities get fuzzy. And we just get busy. And then we get into what we call the tyranny of the urgent. We only give ourselves to what's the next thing that needs to be done. And what happens here is Jesus says, uh, it's obvious what needs to be done, but I'm not going to do the obvious. I'm going to spend time with the Father and let him determine the priorities of my life. And when he hears from the Father, even though there are needs right in front of him, he goes, let's go somewhere else. Why? Because that's what I've come for. What a dramatic difference, folks, if you and I began to live our days out of not the tyranny of the urgent, the next thing that needs to be done, but what if you and I really began to live our days out of time alone with God where we gave him opportunity to get our priorities straight, we got in step with him, and then we did what he told us to do. You see that difference? You see how easy it is to fall into the usual trap of doing the obvious instead of pursuing the Father and saying, let me listen. Let me get quiet. Let me get some solitude and listen to the Lord. So question for you. While Jesus is doing this, What are the disciples doing? The text doesn't say, but what would you guess? 
it would seem that they are sleeping, right? It seems that they are sleeping while he's doing this. That while Jesus is getting alone with God and by, let me let you fill in the blank, by getting alone with God, they are, he's getting his heart and his priorities in focus. While he's doing that, it would seem that his disciples are sleeping. And it would seem that they're sleeping because they don't know where he is. In other words, he snuck out while they were still snoozing. Does that never happen to you? You wake up in the morning and you're like, where is everybody? What happened? You slept in, people got up and went and they didn't leave you a note. Did they go to the store? Are they outside? What's going on? That's what's happening with the disciples. They don't know where Jesus is because they were staying where Jesus was staying. They had clearly slept in while he had slipped out. So they want to know where he is. They can't find him. When they finally do, they go, everyone's looking for you. Do you know what they're really saying at this moment? (laughs) We ain't got time for this. There's no time for this solitude and silence stuff. We got stuff to do. Don't you realize you can't be out here by yourself. You got to get back to everyone who is looking for you. See, so, so clear here that Jesus and the disciples end up with different agendas as the day begins. And they end up with different agendas. Why? Because one of them got away and listened, and others just got up and did whatever seemed to be urgent. Everybody's looking for you, and they're shocked when Jesus says, well, I'm going elsewhere, and he did. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. He got alone when you're overwhelmed, You get alone with God so that you can get his heart and focus, and then you get after it. I love the fact that Jesus said, all right, this is what we're going to do, and then he left. He did not say, well, you know, I was thinking we should go, but uh, it's 11 to 1, we'll stay. He said, I think we should go. They said, I think we should stay, and he left. You ever known somebody who their mode of operation is this? Ready, fire, aim. You ever met somebody like that? They're dangerous to be around. There's not much of listening. It's ready, fire, and then I aim. But lots of longtime church people are not like that. They're not ready, fire, aim. They're this. Ready, aim, aim. 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 You've been in church 20 years aiming. And God's gone, shoot! Shoot! Fire! Come on, shoot! How many of you would say, I've been through four discipleship courses, but never discipled a single person? You've heard 20 Bible studies. I've done all the Bethmore Bible studies. Yeah, but have you ever led a Bible study? Have you ever actually, after God said, aim, and you aimed, you fired? 
Or was it just, ready? Aim, aim, aim. Christians are notoriously professional aimers. The longer we stay around, the less we shoot, the more we aim. All right, so here's, here's the question. When you get overwhelmed, when things get really busy in your life, where do you miss the example of Jesus? Do you miss this? To get alone? Or do you get alone and therefore get focused, but then never get after it? You're a professional quiet timer. You just never went anywhere. With all your quiet times, you just don't really do much. See, some of us do a bunch, but we're not focused. And other of us are really focused, but don't do much. Where's it short-circuiting in your walk with Jesus? Because you're going to hit days or weeks or months where the needs are bigger than the minutes. And I'm asking you, would you get alone, get focused, and then get after it? That's the example. Now, back to verse 39. Important word in verse 39. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. The key word is here, and he. I say that because this account is recorded in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark says, after the conclusion, he went into their synagogues. Matthew says, and Jesus was going. And Luke says, and he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Do you notice the pattern? Who is obviously absent? The disciples. They are noticeably absent after this, maybe you would say, confrontation. Where are you? People are looking for you. Let's go somewhere else. He said, let's go somewhere else. And what's the next verse say? And he went, and he went, and Jesus was going. So though it doesn't say it exactly in the text and the disciples didn't go, I'll show you in a minute why I'm absolutely certain they didn't. We have a parting of ways. Jesus goes and the disciples stay. My point is this. When you don't, that is, don't get alone, don't get focused, don't get after it, you do get left behind. Not left behind as in you don't go to heaven. Left behind as in God will continue to do his work, whether you join him or not. Do you realize God is going to do a work in Jacksonville? He's going to do a work in this community. That's not a question of whether he's going to. The question is, will you join him or are you going to get left behind like the disciples did? Two observations first. The work of God is never dependent upon our obedience. God is not wringing his hands going, what am I going to do if they don't obey me? He'll do his work, whether you obey him or not. But this is equally true. The privilege of participating in the work of God is dependent upon our obedience. His work is not dependent on our obedience, but the privilege of participating is dependent upon our obedience. Now, you look up here for a moment, just, just 
I know that's not in your message memo. Look up here for a moment, please. Do you think, do you see participating in the work of God as a privilege, not just a duty? I wish I could could convince every single one of you that there is no greater privilege on the planet. That whether it's in your home or on your street or at your work and in some other way and to some other group, there is no greater privilege than the privilege of being an instrument in and through which God does his work. I distinctly remember my, one of my previous neighbors coming to Christ after listening to former NFL quarterback Mark Brunell here in town say, everybody thinks how great it would be to be an NFL quarterback, and I want you to know there is no greater privilege. Being an NFL quarterback does not even compare to the privilege of being an instrument in participating in God's work. And that man believes it. Do you? Do you believe that the greatest privilege that you could aspire to is to be an instrument, a person through which God does his work? If you've tasted it, you've believed it. If you haven't tasted it, it's just theory. And I'm hoping that you will be compelled by God's grace in your life to experience the privilege of participating. It's reserved for those who are obedient and the disciples get left behind. Now, why am I sure? Turn to Luke chapter five. Here's why I'm sure the disciples get left behind. From Mark one to Luke chapter five. As you turn there, let me give you a brief overview of the journey of the disciples so far. We talked about this two weeks ago. First, when they first met Jesus, they got acquainted with him, and then they started following him. They went from Galilee down to Jerusalem. They were there, the cleansing of the temple. They were there with the Samaritan woman. They were there baptizing in that region. Then they went back up north to their region, and they stopped following and went back fishing. He then shows up along the Sea of Galilee again, and he invites them Follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. And they start following again. They did. And then we come to Mark 1 where they disagree with Jesus leaving. Jesus says, let's go. They say, no, we should stay. And so they stop. Jesus goes and they stay. So what we're going to see in Luke chapter 5 is what follows this event. And we're going to see... How did the left behind get back on track? Here it is, Luke chapter 5. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him, that's Jesus, and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. That is simply the Sea of Galilee. So if you would look up here for a moment again. What's happening is Jesus was with the disciples. They say, we got needs here. Let's meet him. He says, no, let's go to towns elsewhere. They stay. He begins to go elsewhere to other synagogues, other towns around Judea. And in that process of going around, he has now worked his way back to along the Sea of Galilee. And guess what happens? 
he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and they were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon. See, this is an odd because he's known Simon. He's ministered with Simon before. It's a little awkward in the fact that Simon had been with him, but had stopped. And now Jesus shows back up and says, hey, can I use your boat? You ever had that situation where you had a friendship and then something happened and it broke, it? it broke the friendship a bit? It was an awkward moment. And then you were at the grocery store and you saw them. And it's like, hmm, what is in this tuna fish? Okay, they're free. You have that awkward moment where you're like, ooh, this is like unusual now. So Peter shows, excuse me, Jesus shows back up and says, hey, can I use your boat? And Peter's like, Sure. He climbs in and he speaks from the boat, teaching the people. When he had finished speaking, he says to Peter, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Hey, Peter, let's go fishing. And Peter says, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. Now just pause there. I love this. Because actually what's happening, the details are different, but Jesus is simply bringing back Peter back to their previous moment of disagreement. In Mark 1, it was Jesus saying, let's go, and Peter saying, no, let's stay. And so Jesus left, and Peter didn't go. Jesus shows back up and says, let's go, and Peter's going, oh, let's stay, we're going to wash the nets. I've taken my shower. It's been a bad night. Don't rub it in. But watch. But I will do as you say. See, that's dramatically different than Mark 1, isn't it? This time, this time, Peter says, I think we should stay, but, but what? I'll do as you say and let down the nets. If you are off track spiritually, if you have been walking with the Lord, but you're kind of off track now, and you've thought, man, how do I get back on track? Are we trying to warm up at times? You know, things are broken. Let's, let's try and warm up and kind of ease back in. It's not what you do. You simply acknowledge <laughs> I was wrong. Last time, I did what I want to do. This time, I'll do whatever you say. So you want to get back on track? Begins by simply acknowledging I need to be humble. And that doesn't have to be a nebulous or fuzzy word. You know what humility before the Lord really is? Here's what it is. I hope this will help you and stick with you the rest of your life. Humility before the Lord is this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That's humility. Leaning not on my own understanding. I think this. But I'll do whatever you say. That's humility. It's, it's why we have as our Bible guy that our sticker of saying, this is not where we hold the word of God. We hold the word of God not here where we consider what Jesus says, but here, under 
the word of God, that we humbly say, whatever you say, that's what I'll do. So, for some of you, here's the question. What do you know that Jesus has said but you haven't been willing to do to this point? That's where you got off track. That's where you get back on track. You got off track when you said, now I think this, and you stuck with your own understanding. You get back on track by saying, I was wrong. Whatever you say, that's what I'll do. Oh, but I don't feel it. Neither did Peter. (laughs) I'm so tired, I just want to go to bed. But whatever you say, I'll do. If you're waiting for a feeling close to God again, don't wait for a feeling. Simply go back to the place where you stopped trusting in him and you leaned on your own understanding and say, I'll trust you. Whatever you say, that's what I'll do. When you do, watch what happens. When they had done this, what Jesus had said, they enclosed a great quantity of fish. That's a, that's a net there. They enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. Two, if you're a fisherman, two miracles here. First, what's the first miracle? Obviously, the quantity of fish caught. What's the second miracle? <laughs> they shared the fishing hole with somebody else. See, if you're a fisherman and somebody goes, where'd you catch that thing? You're like, uh, that way. (laughs) You don't share that stuff. You keep that stuff to yourself. But but they catch so much, they go, wow, this is the work of God, and we're going to invite somebody else in. It's that good. That's miraculous. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw what's going down in the boat, He goes to his knees and says, Lord, you got to find somebody else to follow you. I'm a fool. I'm a failure. I realize what an idiot I am. You got to get somebody else. He sees. When I went, own way I made a wreck of it and when I simply do what you say I see how you work I am not worthy of this I'm a sinful man now question is that a new reality for Peter had he been fine but now he's a sinful man is that new for Peter it's a new admission It's not a new reality. It's a new, important admission where Peter, on his knees, in the boat, surrounded by enough fish that's about to make him sink, that he goes, I don't deserve. you got to find somebody else. I'm not worthy. Jesus said in another setting this. Well, first this, sorry. What, what Peter demonstrates is that when we are humble, when we'll get to here, 
If we really get to hear what will result is we'll be broken. We will realize how far we fall short, how much we fail, how dependent and desperately wicked we really are. That's what this will do to us. Peter's broken, but concludes, watch, he concludes that because he's broken, Jesus should pick somebody else. When in fact, as I'll show you in a moment, that is exactly what qualifies Peter to now follow. It's ironic, but the very thing, this is the counterintuitive. What do you, how do you get back on track? Well, you get your life together. No. How do you get back on track spiritually? You admit how broken you are. We think we need to fix ourselves. And what Peter demonstrates is, no, I only get back on track by acknowledging how much of a failure and how much of a sinner I really am. Jesus says in another setting, he who is forgiven little loves little. (laughs) Now, let's be clear here. Who has been forgiven little? Nobody. Only there, there, nobody's been forgiven little. There's only those of us who think and see ourselves as having been forgiven little. So here's a compelling reality, a truth that you're not going to enjoy hearing. Because if you find yourself this morning in a place where you're going, I just don't love God that much. I know I should. I just don't love God that much. I feel badly that I don't love him more. Then the answer is this. You don't love him much because you think too much of yourself. You think too highly of yourself. Because if you saw yourself for who you really were, that you were forgiven much, you'd love much. Little love is for people who see themselves as little sinners. And there aren't any of us, just those of us who think of ourselves that way. See, the, the counterintuitive reality to an overwhelmed life is to skip time with God and get after it. Now, that's the natural way. The counterintuitive is to add, get alone so I can get after what he wants me to do. When we think we're off track spiritually, we think, God, I got to get my life together. I clean myself up. I got to become a better person. No, what you need to do <laughs> is be broken, admit who you really are. Because when you think you are most disqualified, you're actually becoming qualified. Here's why I believe that. Jesus says, Jesus, depart from me. Find somebody else. I'm a sinful man. What Jesus says to him, don't fear. From now on, you'll be catching men. That's who I've been looking for. No, 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 no. Right conclusion about self, wrong conclusion about following me. 
The place we don't want to go is the place we must go if we're going to follow him. And watch what happens. So when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And this time, even though they had been on and off, on and off, this time, when they left everything and followed him, they did for the next few years until their world got turned upside down and they had to now just realize they were following a suffering Savior. But this is a, this is a no turning back moment for Peter and the other disciples when there is finally brokenness and recognition, I'm a sinful person. I'm a fool. I'm a failure. That is not what disqualifies you. That is what qualifies you. If you are here thinking, I need to get my life together so I can follow Jesus, you're wrong. You need to admit and be broken. And then you can follow. You see, when I'm off track spiritually, the first place, be humble. When I'm humble, I will inevitably be broken. And then when I am broken, then I can be a recipient of grace and what was true for Peter, then a proclaimer of grace as well. So I ask myself sometimes, Why am I not more verbal about my faith? Why are not we more verbal? Why don't we share our faith more? And then I see it. I'm often silent about faith. Why? Because I haven't received grace. Because I haven't been willing to be broken. Because I'm still leaning on my own understanding. You want to get back on track? Be humble. It'll lead you to be broken, which is not cruel or bad. It's good and it's kind. Brokenness is the kindness of the Lord. A broken and a contrite heart, he will not despise. And so this may seem the weirdest thing for me to encourage you to do. But I encourage you, invite the Lord to break you, to see who you really are in and of yourself, that you might then see how great his grace is. And then as a recipient of great grace, of great forgiveness, there will flow within you great love that will have great love flow through you. That's Peter's story. Father, I pray that that there would be among many of us a willingness to see who we really are. How desperately we have failed. How far and how often we fall short. And Lord, would you, would you open the eyes of our hearts this morning so that we would see in that moment not disqualification, but your grace. Don't fear. Now you'll do what I've called you to do. And pray that we would walk with you, follow you, no turning back, not out of our strength, but out of our brokenness, out of our humility, that you would find in us 
all across this room and all across the north, that you would find in us men and women who would say, but whatever you say to do, Lord, that's what I'll do. And I pray that that would be to the praise of your glory and the fullness of our joy in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, if we can uh, pray for you specifically this morning, maybe to get back on track spiritually or you have some questions or some brokenness, we'd love to pray with you, talk with you. Always men and women available for prayer. God bless. Thanks for being here and happy Mother's Day.